There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hello everyone, and today's episode we will be looking into psychedelics. So I'm joined with Julian Vane, the author of Getting Higher, the Manual of Psychedelic Ceremony. Julian, could you start by telling us a little bit about yourself and what you do? Okay. Um, well, firstly, thank you very much for having me uh, here on the show. Um, so, what do I do? Um, I am uh, an occultist and a writer. So I'm someone who's interested in mysterious and weird stuff in its various manifestations, and I'm interested in writing about that. And I've been doing that for oh, more years than I can really think about, for 30, getting on for 30 years, something like this, uh, and working in a ritualistic ceremonial context with a whole variety of different um, uh, collections of people from druids and um, modern day Wiccans and ceremonial magicians through to people who've got kind of traditions of um, I guess what we would describe as sort of tribal cultures from places like you know the Americas and so on um, so I'm interested in weird stuff the borders of the human imagination all that kind of thing that's me great thank you okay so you have a book out again like I said called getting higher could you give the listeners a brief brief synopsis of what the book is about so the book is a collection of uh, both modern and ancient ideas about how we can make best use of psychedelic experience. So it looks at uh, everything from very light touch kind of games and practices that you might want to play while you're high on psychedelics through to how different cultures around the world uh, for example, those cultures that make use particularly of things like, um, I don't know, uh, peyote or ayahuasca, the way that those cultures have built those um, processes into ceremonial settings. It explores the idea of ceremony as something that humans do. And it doesn't really have to be part of like a religious belief or anything really, other than it's about kind of setting uh, the right environment to have a psychedelic experience. Psychedelics, of course, are very plastic drugs. What, what you get out of them is very much what you put into them. So if you put yourself in the right kind of environment and you organize things uh, in a way and you allow for a degree of spontaneity as well, you can end up having these really remarkable, powerful experiences. And so the book Getting Higher is meant to be a guide to help facilitate those experiences for people. Um, so I'm going to take a few steps back. And could you tell us what psychedelics are? So... There are a number of definitions of uh, psychedelics, but if we just stick to the kind of the mainstream stuff. So a psychedelic drug is a drug that manifests the mind. It's a drug that makes the mind seem apparent. 
So that's a kind of paradoxical and a weird thing. What does that mean? So these are classes of uh, substances um, often derived from plants, some of which are um, artificially constructed by humans in laboratories, occasionally which come from uh, other species of animal, uh, which when we take them, change our state of awareness. So we remain awake and alert. So we're, we, we don't have a sense of being um, that we're kind of drunk in any way or that, um, uh, that we're losing consciousness necessarily. Um, so we're alert to what's going on. But what's going on is very often our conceptual categories of the world are being blended together in interesting and novel ways. So that can mean uh, visually. It might mean that um, the world looks sparkly and strange and the curtains look like they're breathing and your friend looks like they're, um, they, they, they're, the way that they're standing reminds you of, um, I don't know, a lion or something. So you, internally, you might find that all kinds of ideas, novel ideas start to be made because basically the conceptual wiring that's going on, the neurology inside, um, inside you that's being affected by these, um, these substances uh, is creating these novel connections, these new connections between bits of the brain that normally don't talk to each other. So they manifest a kind of an awareness, a state of awareness, which can have all kinds of different effects. But fundamentally, it's to do with the fact that there are bits of, uh, if we look at it neurologically, there are bits of your neurology that, that don't normally connect. So, for example, you don't normally associate, unless you've got synesthesia, say something like um, smell with colour, for instance. Yeah. yeah. Whereas if you've taken a psychedelic, you may have a sense that you can smell a colour or that you can see the music that's being played on, you know, on the, on the stage or something. So you get these kind of interesting mixtures between different sensory modalities, internal and external. Great. You've made me, when you were speaking, you made me think that I was just like, there's so much with psychedelics that I feel that we're only kind of, the well, the media especially, are only just kind of really getting into grips with um uh, a renaissance which you mentioned in your book and you speak to the fact that the world is actually having a psychedelic re uh, renaissance could you talk a little bit about why that is okay so the term psychedelic renaissance has been used by a number of people notably a guy called ben sessa okay so ben sessa is emblematic of i think the psychedelic renaissance so he's a medical doctor he's a pediatrician by training so he's a he's a doctor for children and he's a um he does he does work um, as a psychiatrist, so he's a medical doctor, but specialist in brain stuff, and he works with people who've had really horrible stuff happen to them. You know, they've been abused, or they've had post-traumatic stress disorder from war, or some terrible thing. And one of the things he's working on at the moment uh, in London uh, is a, piece, a bunch of research. That this is kind of like a new wave of research after psychedelic research was basically made illegal from the uh, 1960s onwards. So he's working with people to use MDMA ecstasy as a part of a psychotherapeutic tool to help those people. Because what I mentioned earlier about how psychedelics allow new connections to be made in the right setting, the right set and setting, the right circumstances, which is what Ben is, is both trained in and developing as a protocol. What you can do is you can help people look at a problem, let's say an injury or a psychological wounding that's happened to them and for help them to find a way of making sense of that yeah so it doesn't rub out the memory but what it does is it helps people either come to terms with or find a way of settling with that so that they can get on and live their lives and not be trapped by that memory so the psychedelic renaissance is people like ben Sesser. it's people who are uh, increasingly researchers who are finding that they're getting licenses to research these materials which were prohibited for 
30 or so years for longer in some cases and they're rediscovering what was discovered actually when a lot of these substances things like lsd were first being studied which was that they had tremendous potential benefits to us individually arguably culturally as well that's what the psychedelic renaissance is great thank you so that's is that similar to where mdma is used for for example post-traumatic stress disorder or in the past when it's been used for marriage counseling it's exactly that i mean mdma was being used um in a sort of uh, unlicensed semi-legal way particularly in the united states as you as you rightly say for um therapy for uh, for couples um, and for other kind of relationship-based stuff, it's very successful with that. It's, of course, it's an empathogen, so it makes us feel empathy. Um, MDMA was then made uh, illegal, uh, and the research on it basically stopped. There was a little bit of research to try and find out, is this stuff toxic? Because, you know, it turned out to be terribly popular. Millions upon millions of people take and use MDMA all the time. Um, but the recent wave of research is exactly going back to a lot of this stuff. So back to the work on, for example, addiction interruption, which psychedelics, it would seem, psychedelics used in the right kind of setting are the best way of interrupting addiction that we have. Yeah? Mm -hmm. So whether that addiction is to alcohol or whether it's a kind of a, an addiction, if you like, to a, a, a self-damaging or relationship-damaging set of behaviours or patterns that we can't find our way out of psychedelics have uh, a lot of benefit in that in that respect and yeah so that's that's what's being researched now uh in this new wave of licensing that we're currently living through great it's fairly interesting because in my head mdma doesn't necessarily fall into the category of psychedelics i mean and within your book it is obviously mdma is classed as a psychedelic because it does have you know said properties that share with psychedelics but it, it doesn't fall into that category. It's more like, you know, a club drug or, you know, like you said, an empathogen makes me feel all, you know, love, lovey and stuff like that. I guess, I guess the thing is that um, uh, the phenethylamines family of drugs, so that's the modified psychedelic amphetamines uh, mm -hmm. of which MDMA is a version. That includes things like mescaline, which comes from the peyote cactus and the San Pedro cactus, it includes things like uh, 2CB, which is a somatic um, psychedelic so it works very much on the body it, it affects things like smell and taste and text touch and so on um, and obviously if you, if you you know if you go to higher dose um, DMA is undoubtedly psychedelic in the sense that you will see things that are you know powerful visual phenomena you'll have um, very strong uh, changes but but the thing about MDMA and the reason it's used in psychotherapy is because at most a reasonable dosage and in good envi a good environment, people feel very lucid and feel very calm. So something like LSD, uh, again, you can do the same kinds of work with LSD, but LSD um, requires um, a lot more, I don't know, uh, there's a degree of sensitivity with regard to how you structure an LSD session, um, which yeah, it's, I think it's, it's more challenging to do than MDMA because MDMA generally leaves people, like you say, feeling relaxed, sociable, basically okay, you know, um, and, and, and pretty kind of lucid, at least at a lower dosage range. But it's still, still part of that same family, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's a broad church, as it were, psychedelics. 
Okay, so it, you've mentioned before, and in the book you talk about set, setting, and substance, and how they're really important to think about when using drugs, especially because changing one of the three things can result in a completely different experience. Could you talk to our listeners about what set, setting, and substance are, and why they're so important to consider? Okay, so let's deal with the substance bit first. Let's deal with the actual drugs. So we've got issues of all kinds of things, you know, the legal context in which those are being taken, how they've been obtained, um, what the kind of uh, environmental or social footprint of those substances might be. And also then things like what dosage we're going to take and how we're going to take that dose. All of those factors will make a difference. So MDMA is MDMA, but if you decide to take MDMA um, uh, if you t decide to insufflate a large amount of it, so you're going to snort a big line, that's going to come on in a different way than if you take it orally. Yeah. So the substance and the way that we engage with the substance makes a difference to the experience. And then the two big ones that really got discovered um, by Timothy Leary and a lot of the team that were working with him um, in the US was, was uh, is this idea of set and setting. So your set is your mental state. So if you go into a, um, a, a psychedelic experience with a problem in your mind, which could be a, you know, a tiny insignificant thing or a work-related thing or whatever, or it could be a massive thing like an, um, an emotional uh, relationship problem, that will almost certainly become a focus for part of your experience because your brain is working on this. In the right situation, in the right setting, that mental set, isn't necessarily a, dif a difficulty. In fact, it, it, that's how it's used in, in, a, in a therapeutic uh, sense. But the set, the, uh, the feelings that we go into the experience with massively influence our experience. That's kind of true of anything, really, um, to some extent. If you go in thinking, God, this film's going to be really boring, probably the film will turn out to be really boring. You know, because the way we, pr we prime ourselves for an experience and then what happens are closely linked. The other thing is the setting. So what's the environment I'm going to take this substance in? I'm going to take a substance that's going to radically reorientate my way of thinking about the world and my awareness. I could do that while I'm at the dinner table with my family, my mum and dad. Probably that's not the best scenario for many people. You might want to be with a group of peers in a relaxed and, and uh, safe environment. Uh, so it's unlikely that you would want to be um, in a very kind of challenging setting for those sorts of things. It kind of depends on what you want to achieve, but you need to think about like, what's the environment? What's the frame? What's the, the situation in which I'm going to take these drugs? How am I going to take the drugs and what, what drugs are they? And how do I feel about it? How do I feel about what I'm going to do here? Because it's those three things that will come together to create the psychedelic experience. Great, yeah, thank you. There's a section that I found really interesting. Uh, it was basically said, why get higher? So could you um, talk us through just a few reasons of why people will take psychedelics for recreational purposes? So not for um, the medicinal purposes that we've said previously about the Renaissance, but mainly uh, re recreational reasons. Okay, so the first thing I would say is that although I talked about kind of therapy and all those sorts of things and, and you know, the idea of um, psychedelic ceremony sounds all terribly religious, I'm certainly not against the idea of taking psychedelics for fun. Because I think that there is a, I think that there is a, particularly in a post-Protestant kind of culture, uh, for me, you know, living in the, the, the British Isles, there's this idea that, 
you know, fun is basically a bad thing and we should, you know, we need we need to sort of be a bit careful about this. It's going to all go horribly wrong. But I think the idea of uh, recreation, recreation, nurturing ourselves, going out with our mates, you know, to take MDMA together, to have a fantastic time, to get a sense of our shared humanity, to dance together, to sing together. Frankly, that's what a lot of cultures do. And, you know, whether we dress that up in religion or we simply say, I'm going to have a really good time and I'm going to really appreciate that. That, for me, is a good reason for taking those things. Um, I think that uh, as long as, you know, obviously we're trying to not to do this to, in a way that's damaging ourselves or others, to actually actively cultivate joy in our lives is actually beneficial to ourselves and others, I would argue. So that's, you know, one, one uh, reason that you might want to take a psychedelic in a kind of recreational um, setting. Although, of course, realize that psychedelics, you know, they have all these other different potentials. So you may go out for a perfectly nice night out and end up with this powerful self-transformative experience or possibly this very difficult experience, which you then need to kind of spend time after the drugs are worn out working through because it's brought up all kinds of stuff that you didn't think it would. There are many reasons for, for, for using these things. And of course, they don't they don't sit well with everyone and they don't sit well with everyone all the time, you know. As we're having this conversation, I'm not on psychedelic drugs, remarkably. You know, I spend a lot of my time not being on them because it's not it's not about it's not a kind of consumer thing. We just do all this stuff. It's about uh, for me in that book, it, it's saying, look, these are powerful value, potentially valuable experiences, potentially transformative. They'll give you that, you know, that numinous moment, that peak experience, this sort of thing that, you know, mystics and, 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 and people kind of write about and go on about. It will give you the opportunity to um, to nurture and nourish yourself. It will give you the opportunity to maybe explore aspects of yourself, discover kind of uh, answers to problems that you've had, um, all of those sorts of things. But let's just appreciate it, yeah? Let's just kind of you know build a culture where we say these things are available. Let's use them not just safely, but let's use them in a way that's actually actively good. And, and we do this actually a lot of the time. Our culture isn't considering how... We've not had access to um, psychedelics for, you know, arguably many hundreds of years uh, in Western culture. Uh, we're doing pretty well, considering. So, yeah, all of those kinds of reasons. With well, a potentiation one is interesting, which is just that, you know, if you've got a small amount of a substance, if you build the set and setting correctly, it will be stronger. So you don't actually mm -hmm. take more drugs. Yeah. So it's, you know, and there are examples of this from things like placebo effect. And there are examples of this from you know i've seen it in in i guess what you call traditional cultures in the peyote um ceremony in in native american cultures sometimes people take a lot of peyote sometimes they take very very little because frankly the whole thing about singing through the night and having the fire and they're having the big meal at the end it's like going out clubbing you don't actually have to take mdma to enjoy clubbing you know it, it's something that you can choose to add on to it if you want yeah? And actually, if you take a small amount of MDMA and then you go to a really, really amazing club and have a fantastic night with your friends, you know, maybe that's as good as going to a really rubbish club and taking four pills. I don't know. Yeah, no, absolutely. I've got a, a, a question that's slightly different, but you, so you speak to the difference between natural and psychedelic, uh, no, natural and synthetic psychedelics. So let's say the comparison between mushrooms or LSD you don't differentiate the two within the book and it's all within what the psychedelic word but in real life is there a type of hierarchy in the psychedelic world for example is natural considered better than psychedelic uh, than synthetic man i don't know i mean not to me not to right. me quite genuinely not to me i mean i've i've um 
been fortunate enough to work with practitioners who have, you know, whose cultures have thousands of years of, of lineage with things like ayahuasca um, uh, and um, peyote and so on. Um, and I've also been privileged to um, to be able to speak with uh, people who uh, have produced LSD illegally and been in jail as a result of it. And I can tell you that the sense of, you know, these are all just people in my view, and there are pluses and minuses to both arguments. You know, here you've got a plant, okay, that's great, you can grow it. Maybe you can grow it in the country that you live in. Maybe it's going to mean that someone's going to be out in the jungle ripping the vine off the trees because you happen to be a Westerner who likes the idea of ayahuasca and you've got enough money. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that's not so cool. Um, maybe it's a uh, 5-MeO-DMT, which is produced by the venom glands of the Sonoran Desert Toad, which is now under threat because of people, um, you know, several reasons, actually. But one of the threats is from harvesting the um, poison you can make that material quite happily in a laboratory and although you know you can do the carbon footprint calculation whatever i would argue that that may be a more sensible option equally mdma doesn't exist as far as we can tell in nature um it has to be chemically tweaked it has an organic uh, root like most of these things do but um so, so for me, it's 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 not an either or. And any example you give me, I can show you how you could argue that it's artificial, or you could argue that it's natural. So ayahuasca, which is you know the big thing people talk about these days, here it is from South America. Now that's two plants mixed together and uh, brewed up over a fire. This substance doesn't exist in in quotes in nature. This is a human concoction made using fire. So is that natural? Well, no, it isn't. I mean, is it is it cultural? Well, yes, in a sense, it is definitely. Is it open to exploitation and overproduction and all kinds of stuff? Yeah, of course, because it's a substance like anything else. You know, equally, you could have um, people who, rightly or wrongly, believed LSD would change culture and make us, you know, more sane and better people. So you've got people like the Brotherhood of Eternal Love back in the um, uh, late twentieth um, century. Uh, America, and they were producing vast quantities of this stuff, not to get rich, but in order to distribute it as freely as they could, because they thought it would end to the lead to the end of the war in Vietnam and um, the destruction of the uh, patriarchal oppression. And who knows? Maybe in the long game they will be right. So I don't know. It's not. It's not. You know, natural, artificial. It's. It's kind of where you where you choose to put the dividing line. What's more important, in my view, is. The stuff you've got in your hand, the stuff you're going to take, can you say this has come to you in a good way? Yeah. So can you can you as and it's difficult with illegal supply lines. But, you know, if you if you can make a good relationship with that substance, either that um, you're trusting the people through whom it's bought and where it arises or you're cultivating yourself or if it's mushrooms, maybe you're going out to the landscape and gathering these, the better you can have that relationship, the better your trip is likely to be. Yeah, because that's part of the set that you're bringing into the experience. Absolutely. Okay, so in your book, you talk about sex in a psychedelic setting and ensure that consent is properly given and the boundaries are respected and that people basically never get pressured into engaging behaviours that they're not comfortable with. Now, I feel that this advice is basically great for any sexual activities in general, but why is it important to note it in a psychedelic setting? Um, I agree with you. that I, that, I mean, I, I would have... I would hope that 
it's that those sorts of strategies of being thoughtful about other people uh, are ones that, that we both try and do and aspire to and hopefully our mates remind us to do those mm. things yeah um, I think it's particularly important to look at things like issues of, of consent within um, uh, any experience where uh, drugs are involved because even the concept of consent is quite kind of problematic and certainly the concept of consent when you've taken MDMA let's say um, is, is perhaps even more problematic so I think that again it's and the book gives examples of this that there's plenty of things you can ex if you want to experiment with like sensuality you want to experiment with um uh you know uh, one of the one of the things that people sometimes do with mdma is like a uh, group cuddling yeah so no explicit sexual activity not necessarily even any kissing but just like lounging over each other humans do this you know we it's a great thing that we do this because many of us don't have enough uh non-sexual supportive touch in our lives and so to be able to say to people okay so here's a domain that you might want to experiment with be thoughtful about it because particularly when drugs are involved not there isn't an answer in my view it's just hey let's notice that this is going to be an important thing here and just try and be sensitive about it yeah great thank you one of the things that might be worth exploring something i, I mentioned a little bit earlier which is just this idea about how um how Western culture, let's just call it that for convenience, um, how we are quite new to the whole psychedelic thing. Yeah, so we've had, we've had alcohol forever, we've had opium for you know, a very long time, um, then we've recently had all these kind of stimulants coming into our culture in the form of tea and coffee and refined sugar and all these sorts of things. But what we haven't had, what our culture hasn't had for hundreds of years you know arguably one and a half thousand years uh, is our psychedelics yeah so this class of substance which don't exactly make you drunk can kind of make you talkative but also can make you quite quiet you know they, they behave in a very different way um, than, than just uppers or downers um, and so we I think that you know we're, we're learning to navigate our way through this you know we did that in the 60s with things like the rock concert we did it in the 80s with inventing the rave when these substances came into our culture and going back to what you said earlier on about the psychedelic renaissance this is us doing it again you know this is this back to the kind of medical thing where we're going oh actually do you know what this stuff does have a, val a, a use it does have a value it does have a um a real benefit uh, to people um and it's a, they're a group of substances which, which our culture hasn't been anywhere near for a long time. And I just sometimes wonder, I just sometimes wonder if the fact that we are the culture that brought you nuclear weapons, two world wars, um, slavery, uh, transatlantic slavery and environmental devastation, whether there's any connection between those things. Do you know what I mean? That, that like, here are, here are all these other cultures many of whom have access to the psychedelic experience, which tends on the whole to, to create a certain, to cultivate a certain set of ideas within people's minds. And the culture that didn't have those things, say in the case of Britain, for instance, was the culture that gave you the largest empire the world has ever seen and multiple mm. genocides. And that's it, you know, and the thing is, if you, if you think about our cultures and our addictions to things like, yeah, coke opium alcohol tobacco caffeine sugar those are exactly the addictions 
that if you if you take an individual human and you give them a psychedelic in a supportive environment, so uh, either a ceremonial environment or a, or a psychotherapeutic environment, they're much the same thing. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Then you can use those experiences to help that person overcome their addiction. Yeah, That's what you can do as an individual. Now, I just wonder whether or not collectively there is a, um, there's a benefit to these experiences, which our culture hasn't had, and that's why we've gone a bit crazy. You know, our figures—we're all really healthy. We've got loads of food. We get—we've got so much food. We're all fat, but our level of mental illness is—you um, know—is skyrocketing. You know, and I—I I know that the world isn't a, isn't as simple as the picture that I've painted, but I just wonder whether or not there is some kind of relationship with those things. Yeah, this, there definitely sounds like there might be something in that. I've never actually thought of it that way. And now I'm like literally peering off into the distance and thinking about it. <laughs> I mean, that's why the Brotherhood of Eternal Love in America, that's why they wanted to make LSD uh, so cheap. I mean, when they started um, doing their stuff, LSD was very, very expensive. You know, it was like MDMA back in the olden days. It was like the equivalent of $25 a hit or something. Mm. And their mission to, to, to basically make LSD very accessible is because they believed that the psychedelic experience would lead to things like the end of the Vietnam War and a mass protest movement against it, which, of course, interestingly happened. Now, again, what the relationship is between these things is, is something that you know, historians and people can, can explore. But I, I do think that there is um, there's something to be said for that. You know, and it's also, I think, something to be said for, you know, dear, dear old Terence McKenna, peace be upon him, who used to say that, you know, the, the reason these drugs, are psychedelics in particular, are made illegal is not because a loving state wants you to be well. It's actually because these things threaten a lot of the basis upon which we have, for example, war. 
So if I take a psychedelic, let's say mushrooms, right? common experience in mushrooms. Here I am. I'm on mushrooms. I'm sat near a tree, let's say. Um, uh, and I realize that, that the tree and I are both basically the same thing, yeah? which is fu functionally true because I breathe out the carbon dioxide. It breathes out the oxygen. It's all good. I'm sat next now on mushrooms to a, a, a couple of other people. And I realize that basically we're the same as well. We're all part of one living organism. Yeah, very common experience in, with mushrooms. One might argue, and Terence McKenna would probably argue, that then trying to order those people to kill each other because they're wearing the wrong colored, you know, uh, T-shirt, or they happen to speak a different religion, or happen to, to, to subscribe to a different religion, or they have, happen to have a different language, it's going to be more difficult, isn't it? Because I've just realized that those people are my brothers and sisters, like at a deep level, not just at a kind of talky-talky level, but at a deep level, a deep embodied experience. So what do you want for your war? Do you want people who've had experiences like that? Or do you want people who are either high on things that stimulate them, like cocaine and tobacco and coffee, uh, and then things that shut them up at the end of the evening, like alcohol and opium? Which will be easier to manage, do you think? I think the latter. I think that will be easier. Am I right in thinking that LSD was banned around before the Vietnam War in order to... Like for this reason, because people were going against the war. Yes, because the thing about Nixon is that um, what Richard Nixon, who, who set up, you know, the expression war on drugs, that's his term. So, you know, not not necessarily the best. Uh, I mean, even even with the present incumbent, notwithstanding, not the best um, president the United States has ever had. So this guy, this lying individual wanted to break what he saw as the hippie movement, the, the, um, the women's rights movement, the black power movement. And one way of dealing with it was to make the drugs that these people used illegal. And then you could just bust them all. And that's what happened. And there's, you know, there's a, this isn't like a kind of, in my view, crazed conspiracy reading of the narrative. I think it's, I think it's a very supportable reading of the story. And of course it's more complicated than I'm saying here and now, but there are, there were many, many aspects of the uh, the war on drugs, which were basically a war on black people. It was a war on uh, anti-war protesters. And um, in, in many respects, someone can argue, actually, it was a war on uh, on women as well, because all these movements were really kicking off in the US in a really big way. And a lot of those things were associated with those other cultures and with you know rock music and all of those sorts of things. Don't worry, don't worry, because that's, you know, back to the psychedelic renaissance, back to the fact that, again, to quote dear old Terence McKenna, he said, you know, we're not dropping out here, we're infiltrating and taking over. And the fact is that after 40, 50 years of no research, if you go online these days, you'll even see places like, you know, the dear old Daily Mail and, and, and other sort of basically fairly right wing um, press environments saying, do you know what? It turns out that these things actually do have a value. They do have a benefit because it doesn't have to be like an us versus them thing. You know, this can these the 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 healing potential which psychedelics offer to people with addictions and people with uh, pain and hurt. Are, those things can can be are increasingly being made available for people in that situation. And, I, and that that's a good thing that will help those individuals. And slowly, slowly that and the thoughtful use of psychedelics by everybody else, I think can transform culture for the better. Um, that's, that's what I hope anyway. Great. Well, on that positive note, but it's been really interesting. Thank you so much for the interview. 
It's been Thank you. Yeah. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.